Hey everyone, welcome to Neighbor Science, the only podcast about anime and turds. We are here Hell today yeah. to <laughs> we are here today to study the political economy of bird shit and figure out how a mad genius and his friend could use it to rebuild civilization in a few years. Uh, today we're talking about uh, guano, which is accumulated shit from bats and seabirds. Mm-hmm. Uh, we normally associate it with bats, but the most important type comes from the cormorant. And at one point, it was the world's most important fertilizer. Shit. Indeed. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> We're going to be doing that a lot, I have a feeling. Yeah, this whole episode's going to be like, oh, shitty. <laughs> <laughs> it's just going to be like, pun not intended, pun not intended. <laughs> right, right. Um, so, guano is a Quechua word. Basically, just means turd-based fertilizer. So, um, Cool, yeah. Uh, there's archaeological evidence of its use going back between 1,500 and 5,000 years. So people knew that it was good for, uh, the soil for a, mm-hmm. a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it mainly forms on islands off, like off the coast of, um, Peru and, and some other places. And, uh, basically like birds just eat a bunch and then they go to the island and, and they shit all over it. And uh, it accumulates over years and becomes a big brick of fertilizer. Incredible. Um, Do you think think the birds have like, like, do they have like preferred islands to shit guano on or like to shit on to make guano? Well, they don't seem to, but um, there is a preference on what environment they shit it into because. Interesting. Yeah, because. the English tried using guano from their own islands, <laughs> and they found out that because they get a lot more rain than Peru does, mm-hmm. uh, it leaches away all the nutrients. So it's ah. just a pile of shit. This is all. Just imagining, <laughs> yeah. just England, just 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 <laughs> massive patches of just liquefied bird shit lying around and a bunch of like angry Victorians just like kicking at it with one foot. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I'm going to take a lot in this episode from this book called Guano and the opening of the Pacific world, a global ecological history. Mm -hmm. And let me scroll back up to where the author is because I don't remember who Gregory T. Cushman. So, uh, at Kushbaum on Twitter, I think, is, is who that is. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and it's like a, it's a really long book. I didn't make it even remotely uh, all the way through. Um, it's like 415 pages. So, Damn. Yeah. Um, so, very serious book, all about uh, bird turds. And, um, yeah, so I'm going to draw from that a lot. Um. So in the intro, uh, Kushbaum says uh, he makes a point that like uh, we used to be a lot more uh, reverent of of excrement um, and uh, becoming like turning into city people kind of separated us from natural cycles um, and uh, made it into an object of uh, revulsion or humor. Um, right. To the point now where we just don't realize that we, you know, we have to recycle our shit uh, yeah. in order to keep living 
because otherwise we're depleting the soil and not replacing yep. the nutrients that come out of it. Yep. Um, and humans are particularly uh, adept at wasting nutrients because we <laughs> we shit out ninety eight percent of the nutrients we take in. Fuck. Um, in terms of like what uh, what's good for plants. Man, that sucks. <laughs> so let's see. So basically, like even um, when you eat drugs, you're wasting like ninety eight percent of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Shit. Uh, Kushbaum says that there are five ways that intensive agriculture can be maintained. Number one is soil mining, uh, which means like uh, cultivating fields in soil that was built up naturally over time, gotcha. uh, which is what um, settlers in the uh, in the United States did because yes. there used to be like just insane amounts of really rich <laughs> topsoil all over the U.S. Yeah. And um, you can see a map. I think someone happened to tweet a map of it yesterday. Um, yeah, there was, go ahead. I was going to say, uh, I was listening to this audiobook uh, last year um, about, it's called The Death and Life of the Great Lakes. I might have mentioned it before. Um, but it's really interesting, and I stalled out because it is incredibly depressing. Um, but uh, <laughs> the history of the Great Lakes, you know, like you, uh, they talk specifically about how there was like in the Ohio region, you know, what we now call Ohio, um, mm -hmm. south of Lake Erie, um, <clears throat> there was this massive like swamp forest, kind of like a jungle, you know, like a North American jungle that uh, basically um, the, the settlers kind of coveted the soil there, you know, they were like, oh, fuck, like, it's so it's so rich and fertile here. Like I gotta have it. I gotta I gotta make a farm out of this. But like this this jungle is just fucking impenetrable. Right. So then they uh, um, they always had to just go around it. And like you know, and like the indigenous people like respected the fuck out of this ancient forest, right? Like, and it was a truly ancient forest, as I recall. It was like one of these things that's been around for like probably like a million years. Um, has its own kind of biome and everything, and just. Um, so, you know, so the indigenous people, they like just kind of work with it or around it and they, they didn't fuck with it, you know. Um, so the settlers come in, you know, they do what settlers do. And they tried and tried to get into it and they tried and tried to like sort of penetrate and, and exploit this jungle. They couldn't do it. And then, and then eventually, uh, I forget which kind of industrial machinery, um, but some kind of like agricultural machinery was invented. It was like maybe steam powered that enabled them to basically just mow down the entire fucking forest and like recompose like the whole region and turn it into these incredibly fertile farmlands. But the uh, externality, the consequence of that was that um, we discovered very quickly uh, as, you know, uh, people of this area, my, my, sorry, my, my half my family comes from that area. So, you know, Fuck. Uh, but, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but they, uh, they figured out very quickly that, that, that something was wrong with killing this forest off. Right. And they felt, figured out eventually that it was because the, uh, the ecosystem, all the different kinds of plants and animals and like fungi and everything that lived there were basically doing what the, like the bugs and fungi do in Nausicaa, which is that they were, yeah. you know, they were filtering the water. They were preparing different kinds of nutrients for these feedback loops in this wider ecosystem. 
um, and, and so forth. And so then uh, the rivers and like, I think it was also like Erie turned brackish and gross and like things died off and like it went just to nightmare levels, you know? And so, so a lot of what you hear about like, like Erie and like um, the rivers there, um, it, it, it wasn't all industrial waste. It was also the effects of um, soil mining that had that, that, that like was made possible by like um, um, old growth forest destruction and, and, and similar activities. So anyway, that's just like a little tidbit about, you know, the exploitation and the destruction of, of you know, the, the lands and the, and the biomes. Well, to that I say, uh, whoopsie doopsie oopsie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oops. Yep. <laughs> Oops, we accidentally killed the ecosystem. Oh, right. well. Right. I guess we won't We're do it next time. Back. Yeah. Does it next time anyway? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ugh. I um, swear I'm sorry. <laughs> so yeah. So number 1, uh intensive agriculture way, soil mining. Number 2 is soil manipulation, so using additives such as lime to enhance soil fertility. Oh, yeah. Uh, number three, mm-hmm. symbiosis with microorganisms uh, such as uh, clover or legumes or wet paddy rice production, which mm-hmm. fix oh, nitrogen in the soil. Child labor, right? You know, microorganisms working in your soil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, number four is recycling. So mm-hmm. either composting or swidden or night soil, which is another mm-hmm. word for using human shit as fertilizer. Yeah. Um, yep. And number five is. Uh, importing nutrients from elsewhere. So floodplains mm-hmm. like the Nile Delta or coastal mm-hmm. Peru are good for agriculture because uh, the flooding that affects the plains mm-hmm. uh, is coming from uphill where there's mm-hmm. a bunch of nutrients that it's washing down with it. So right. yeah. it's just getting nutrients from like the hills or the mountains or whatever. Yeah. And it's actually speaking of the Nile Delta and, and the downhill effect, like um, this is just also trivia, but, like in the ancient days of Egypt, you know, with all the, like in the earliest days when there was like two pharaohs before they combined it, you know, and, and made the double crown and all this shit. Um, uh, but I guess even also for people who are familiar with the region, like they, they call it the upper and the lower Nile. And it's because, uh-huh. you know, the upper Nile is, is um, upstream toward the slopes, you know, and that's where the, a lot of that water is kind of coming from, um, or like at least passing through the lower Nile is toward that Delta area you know um as you know lowers in lower elevation so you know dank ass uh, river delta there yeah, so it's basically like uh instead of real pharaohism it's crony pharaohism because <laughs> yeah exactly you know, they're using nature as one of their cronies to interfere right, in right. their agriculture what we really need to do is just, you know, uh, remove the crown and then the pharaohs will all be equal and then, and then everything will be fine. You know? <laughs> if you want to be a real pharaoh, you need to, you know, pull yourself up by your, your sandal straps sandal and straps. Uh, that's right. get to work on the, in the floodplains or, you know, that's not right. in the floodplains, actually, because that's that's cheating. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. You know, the, the, the Forbes top 400 self-made pharaohs list. I think we need a. Uh, what we need is we need to uh, throw some Henry George in here. We need a you know a, a floodplain value tax. <laughs> that actually would kind of make sense in a way. <laughs> like Egyptian communism, that would kind of make sense. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
you're like, hey, look, like our nutrients are going to you. And then it's like, it's a maximizer. So you're getting all kinds of cool shit. You're growing all this amazing shit. So why don't you just send, you know, an appropriate proportional uh, 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 percentage of, of your fucking you know, grains and shit back to us you know, up, up the hill. That sounds nice. Makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, um, here's a passage about, uh, about night soil, which again is human excrement used as, um, fertilizer. Mm -hmm. Uh, historically the most productive and sustainable agricultural systems tended to combine all five of these methods in the Valley of Mexico, indigenous cultivators raised, uh, of raised wetland gardens known as, uh, chinampas used lake sediments, decayed vegetation, recycled human excrement, and later livestock manure to augment the fertility of their fields. Mm -hmm. Like ancient Peru, central Mexico possessed uh, rich excremental folklore. (laughs) In in recent centuries, no one surpassed the farmers of southern China in these matters. In the uh, Zhujiang Delta, Pearl River Delta, uh, crop and excrement recycling Silt produced by upland erosion and aquaculture enabled pre-industrial farmers to support an estimated 17 to 25 people per cultivated hectare while producing huge surpluses for export. Um, nice. To contrast, modern farming in the U.S. supports an average of five people per hectare. Yeah, that's not great. That is pretty bad. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And we're super efficient, though. Also, I feel like I just have to say excremental folklore is a very long way of saying shit posting. <laughs> damn us on twitter um, we're all just experimental folklorists <laughs> yeah. uh so uh again in peru guano is produced in large high quality amounts on islands right off the coast mm-hmm. um so early on coastal uh groups of people i can't remember what they're called it's like the mm, i'm not gonna try Those it dwellers <laughs> Oh, no, there's like a it's like an ethno ethno group, yeah. Oh, okay. okay. Um, so they they controlled the islands and the guano at first, um, but the Inca Empire, who lived mm. up on high, later established control over the islands. Uh, they kept a close watch over them and imposed the death penalty on anyone who either lands on the islands during during breeding season or kills any of the birds at any time. Oh wow! Um, Holy shit! <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and control of the islands was assigned to provinces. In uh, this is a passage from oh, this is from Wikipedia actually, but whatever. Uh, in November 1802, Prussian geographer and explorer Alexander von Humboldt first encountered guano and began investigating its fertilizing properties at uh, Callao in Peru. Mm-hmm. Um, and his subsequent writings made the subject well known in Europe. Cool. So Europeans were aware of its fertilizing properties. Um, but I guess they weren't impressed or something like that. Um, <laughs> but it, it really took off when Cornish chemist Humphrey Davy, um, wrote a best-selling book called a- Elements of Agricultural Chemistry, hmm. uh, where he talks about the role of nitrogenous manure as a fertilizer. Um, and it was like the most wet, most popular book ever written on farming at the time. Huh. Um, wow. Uh, let's see. American historian Wyndham D. Miles said that no other work on agricultural chemistry was read by as many English-speaking farmers. Um, 
Wyndham D. Miles so sounds in, like it's just like the name of like a villain in Carmen Sandino or something. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know what it's supposed to be. Um, but it just sounds that way. Yeah. So in the early 19th century, uh, commercial whaling, which is a a topic for another episode, uh, spread to Peru, uh, which brought a lot of supporting industry along. Because mm-hmm. um, whaling whaling is a huge industry, requires a lot of logistics. Um, and it, uh, is a very valuable, it's a very, uh, profitable trade. Mm -hmm. So, um, that meant they needed to buy stuff to take back with them. Um, so they started looking for valuables to bring back. Um, and they fell upon guano. Um, (laughs) put their foot right in it. Yeah. They fell (laughs) in a big pile of, of bird shit. Um, like, oh, this this is good, actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. literal tons of it. Uh, so Ramon Castilla, who was the 20th president of Peru, uh, he opened up the guano mining industry. He like um, put state control over it, and uh, like anyone who extracted it would have to pay royalties. Mm-hmm. And uh, but other than that, he um, you know opened open the mines up uh, for exploitation. So um, they got a lot of revenue from this, which they used to abolish slavery and pull taxes on indigenous people, Hmm. Um, which is good. But also with no slaves, they needed lots of labor to mine the guano that was being used to free the slaves that would have been mining the guano. Okay. so instead of you know black chattel slaves, uh-huh. uh, guano mining during the guano era was done by black-birded Chinese slaves. Ah, fuck. Um, so, very cool. Um, and then the U.S. did the opposite on its island of Navassa, uh, switching from white convict slaves uh, to black-birded black men after the Civil War um, to mine guano. And the the brutal conditions there led to a slave revolt, uh, resulting in five overseers being killed. Which hell yeah, yeah, I like that part. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they got mulched. Um, so I mentioned it already a little bit, but uh, the period from Castilla's rule uh, up until the Chincha Chincha Islands War was actually called the Guano Era, and uh, it's considered a time of prosperity and stability in Peru. Mm. Um. And from 1840 to 1879, which was the peak uh, guano extraction time, uh, Peru exported an estimated 12.7 million tons of guano, uh, valued at 100 million pounds. Goddamn. Um, Most of it was bought by by Great Britain, uh, who used it for turnips, rutabagas, which they call Swedes, which is kind of funny, and uh, mongolwurzel, which is some kind of beet. Okay. Um, it's also called like root of scarcity or something like that. Sounds uh, really uh, what's the word grisly to me. Yeah. Um, and uh, they so they grew turnips, rutabagas, and mongolwurzel to use as cattle feed. Um, so this was Victorian England, and um, this was when they actually stopped letting fields go to fallow, um, and instead just put all of their um, 
energy into high intensive agriculture. Um, so they were just constantly adding fertilizer to the soil to grow cattle feed um, so that they could eat cattle and I guess probably export cattle. Um, the Victorians called it high farming. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, mean, I don't know how some... high you could get off of you know snorting bird <laughs> shit, but if the Victorians <laughs> could do it. <laughs> well, it will fuck you up, but not in the way you want. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and there were there were critics of of high farming. Um, there was a German chemist, a German maybe I don't know, some chemist guy, and um, he said like, sure it works in the short term, uh, but you're setting yourself up for a much bigger failure in the long term, uh, which he did not know the half of, <laughs> uh, but he was right. Um, because th- this is basically this marks the turn from, you know, fairly sustainable uh, medieval agriculture to completely unsustainable modern industrial agriculture. Right. Uh, like which rampant, rampant you know, like degradation of the land. Yeah. Yeah. If you just Google soil depletion, you'll see articles that say like one third of arable land has been lost in the last forty years. Yep. Shit like that. Pretty, pretty crazy. Yeah, and uh, this is also around the time that the Irish potato famine happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so DNA evidence combined with uh, contemporary observation by Jean-Baptiste Boussingault uh, supports the theory that the famine was caused by a type of potato that was imported from Peru in the 1840s, which carried a fungus that infected the uh, sole variety of potato that the Irish people depended on. So... I will say what I have heard is that the fungus story is like the the popular story, uh-huh. um, but that actually a lot of it, it may have it may have had an effect. Um, yeah, it did have an effect, but um, I'm, I'm I've heard this before I, 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 from from seemingly good sources, and I just pulled up an article about it as well that says, and I'll just quote. Uh, this is from Paste Magazine, but whatever. Um, while the blight did strike and take down most of Ireland's potatoes, the truth is that Ireland was exporting more than enough food to feed everyone at the same time as the famine was happening. Run as a colony of the British Empire, Ireland was a colonial food-producing operation, much like India and the Sugar Islands of the Caribbean. The locals were not allowed to eat the very food they were producing. Sounds familiar, right? Um, so yep. basically, these people starved because... They were forced to make the potatoes, but they couldn't. They either couldn't have it or they couldn't afford it. Um, Ireland's economy had always been subservient to British interests. Quinnipiac University professor Christine Keneally says, following the appearance of the potato blight, a number of people in Ireland requested the government to close the Irish ports to keep food inside the country. So they basically were like, "Look, we're making the food. Let's just like keep it here and let us eat the, that food that's, that that exists and hasn't rotted or gone fungal or whatever." And the Brits refused to do so on the grounds that merchants would bring food in under free market forces. <laughs> and this did not happen. Right. The merchants did not bring that food. Uh, or at least when they did, it was not affordable. Well, it did happen according right. to free market forces. <laughs> well, 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 right. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> as, as actually existing capitalism. Yes. So I, 
I uh, <laughs> saw this mistake immediately in my own notes and didn't correct it. Uh, so <laughs> I'll just say it was it caused the Irish potato blight, not the famine. The oh, famine was go. caused by England. Yes, the English they love starting famines. Like yeah, Bangladesh, Ireland. They love to start famines. It's their favorite thing, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One, uh, one thing that the author added, I, th- I think I might be remembering it from a different place, but if I remember correctly, the author pointed out that um, a lot of the issue in assessing how impactful a famine was uh, is that most people don't die of starvation during a famine. Uh, they actually just get like their immune systems are weakened and they die right. from like mainly diarrhea. Oh, diarrhea. Oh shit. Yikes. Yes. Yeah. So, um, more people were killed by, um, epidemic dysentery than, um, by, um, actual starvation, like the plague. Yeah. Yeah. Oh fuck. Yeah. Like more than any other disease in, in Europe. <laughs> They were killed by dysentery due to starvation. Um, That's deeply fucked up. Yep. Yep. Shitting to death. Yep. Surreal poop themed episode. Yeah. I was. I was telling. I was telling Diane that I last night I was uh, looking online uh, for fiber capsules um, and bidets. <laughs> so. My whole week has just been all about pooping. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, sometimes you have those weeks, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> Can't quite finish uh, it off. So next we get to the Chincha Islands War. Okay. Uh, which started up in 1864 when um, Spanish ships captured several of the guano-rich Chincha Islands. In retaliation for Peru's refusal to pay indemnities uh, from the Peruvian War of Independence, so they said that they owed Spain money for uh, for the war, and Peru was like, "No, go fuck yourselves!" And <laughs> Spain captured a bunch of their islands. Um, they later uh, blockaded uh, Valparaiso, mm. and uh, that caused such immense commercial damage. Uh, that it was protested by both the U.S. and the U.K. <laughs> so you know it was bad if they were sure. standing up for a former colony sure, <laughs> in right. South America. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so eventually Peru, Bolivia, and Ecuador allied with Chile to fight back against the dirty Spaniards. Um, the Spanish fleet uh, in one battle leveled Valparaiso and sank 33 ships in Chile's mer- merchant fleet, which set it back decades. Um, but at this point, the Chincha Islands were already near uh, depletion of guano. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I guess I didn't write how the war concluded. So basically, like... Um, <laughs> so then they just kept fighting, and they're still fighting. <laughs> yeah. No, it was like... Uh, they... Uh, they signed a treaty and basically like Spain acknowledged that Peru was a real country and <laughs> they basically just backed off. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't really get much out of it. I don't, I don't think um, uh, the Spanish fleet was defeated by uh, the Alliance, which was pretty humiliating for them. 
Um, but then they, of course, claimed that they didn't really lose. You know, they they're not they're not mad. They're actually laughing. Yeah, um, right, right. That kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so anyway, yeah. Uh, around the end of this uh, war, the Chincha Islands were already near depletion of their guano supplies. Uh-huh. Um, and guano was soon replaced with Chile saltpeter, which is okay. a sodium-based nitrate found in the nearby Atacama Desert. Mm-hmm. So saltpeter uh, is also uh, an ingredient in gunpowder. Yes. So, yep. Yeah, Chile saltpeter is like a. It's very spicy. similar to regular saltpeter, but yeah, it's spicier. Exactly. <laughs> spicier um, gunpowder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's like fire in your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> Um, in 1879, the war of the Pacific began, uh, Chile invaded the coastal part of Bolivia to claim its guano and saltpeter, uh, because of an alliance between Bolivia and Peru, uh, Chile also attacked Peru. Uh, Chile won the war and gained control of the coastline all the way up to Peru. So like before this war, uh, it looked very similar to the current map. Except in between Peru and where Chile now begins, mm-hmm. uh, Bolivia extended out to the coast for like a little segment. Hmm. And uh, so after this war, uh, Chile went all the way up to the border of Peru. Uh, okay. um, yeah. <laughs> uh, Chile yeah, also Bolivia gained control up. of some of Peru's Guano Islands. Uh-huh. Um, and so after the war, uh, Chile's national treasury grew nine times larger with revenue from the newly annexed lands. Damn. Um, and finally, uh, Peru has been attempting to revitalize the seabird population, uh, that was depleted during this time, uh, for over a hundred years now, um, following the recommendations of some conservation scientists mm. that studied it. Um, but the population is still only about a one twentieth of what it was in the late nineteenth century. Jeez. Yeah. Ugh, man. Why do we have to keep killing all these fucking living things? It's so fucking annoying. Like it's only it just pisses me off, you know, hearing about this shit. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. Well, you know, you need people to make iPhones. Yeah. Right. If you like iPhones, uh, then we need to kill everything. So. <laughs> Yeah. Up to you, you know, really. <laughs> I need this glowing toy so that I can do do my uh, my business deals and and find <laughs> idiots to fuck in my spare time and and order <laughs> food with my big money that has been prepared by people who don't get paid enough who by all rights should be cutting my throat right now but instead they're just biding their time. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah, anyway, totally. so uh, the next section, I'm pretty proud of this title. I just want to read the title. Mm. The next section is uh, United States of Bird Shit, Confederate States of Bat Shit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so nice. I'm just going to read right off of Wikipedia here. Uh, uh, the demand for guano led the United States to pass the Guano Islands Act in 1856 which gave U.S. citizens discovering a source of guano on an unclaimed island exclusive rights to the deposits. In 1857, the U.S. began annexing uninhabited islands in the Pacific and Caribbean, totaling nearly 100 islands. Several of these islands are still official U.S. territories. 
Conditions on annexed Guano Islands were poor for workers, resulting in a mutiny on Navassa Island, uh, which I mentioned, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. in 1889, 1889, where black workers killed their white overseers. Uh, in defending the workers, lawyer Everett J. Waring invoked that the men could not, have, could not be tried by U.S. law because the Guano Islands were not legally part of the country. The case went to the Supreme Court, where it was decided in Jones v. United States in 1890. The court ultimately decided that Navassa Island and other Guano Islands were legally part of the U.S. American <laughs> historian Daniel uh, Imervar claimed that by establishing these land claims as constitutional, the court laid the basis uh, for the legal foundation for the U.S. empire. The Guano Islands Act is now considered America's first imperialist experiment. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. It's weird how like these little things, this is actually a, a good way to talk about Sorry, it's a good case, literally a case, um, to talk about how uh, how easily even like uh, a a well-intended like state structure, bureaucracy, whatever you know, um, essentially permanent uh, ossified institution that isn't accountable to you know like a direct democracy of any kind, you know something like the legal system or the, or the state bureaucracy can like, again, it can be, it can be well intended. Like, you know, I can't prove that the founding fathers were actually imagining like uh, an American empire as it is now. Right. Like right. all I can do is, is, you know, reasonably suspect that, you know, yeah, they were like a bunch of racist fucks who like really loved money and, and land and wanted it to themselves and wanted to use popular power to get that, you know, Anyway, uh, but like th- this case really illustrates how like the creep happens, you know, and how like yeah. little things, you know, little tiny little slivers of creep can happen that then open up these broad avenues of exploitation. And in a system like capitalism that is about um, very explicitly about exploitation, um, rampant exploitation that's that's performed at kind of like a um, only semi-centralized sort of chaos level, um, these sorts of things quickly become exploited. And when they're exploited, they're, they're exploited to like the fullest extent of the power of, of the state at any given moment, you know, like it really, it just goes as far as they possibly can, you know, which is why we've got bases fucking everywhere in the world, you know? Right. So, the Guano Islands, you know, they really fucked us up on this one. <laughs> yeah, one thing I was thinking about, um, I mean, with regard to bases all over the world, um, mm-hmm. it's kind of just the sedentary version of what states are always like, which is whenever there's merchants outside of the, uh, you know, the center of the state, mm-hmm. uh, they're always followed by troops or warships or whatever so like like the uh the whaling crews that went down to peru Mm -hmm. uh there was a bunch of warships that were you know nearby in case you know there was like privateering or anything like that yeah um or presumably worker uprisings you know right yeah um i mean it makes me think of kani kosen um Mm -hmm. which uh, there was a, you know, a worker uprising on this crab cannery ship mm-hmm. and, uh, it was 
uh, kept down by the Japanese Navy because they had yep. a destroyer nearby and yep. the boss radioed for the destroyer and it came over and was like, yeah, uh, get back to work. Right. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's the big, it's the big fucking problem with all this. It's just, there's like layers and layers of control um, and like fallbacks, you know? And, and so you've got your various kinds of exploitation that are then backed up by like different kinds of muscle. Um, so, it, it, I mean, it, it just, again, it like, basically completely uh blows away the the idea of you know um like stateless capitalism like it's like no you gotta be fucking out of your mind you know like you haven't read a single goddamn book like you don't know shit about history you don't know shit about like economics in the real world you know like fuck you you know like yeah i'm starting to get over the the use of the word capitalism at all because <laughs> it's like yeah the problem is the state yeah uh, the problem has always been the state yep. and capitalism is just like a type of state with yeah. some like really specific characteristics that the vast majority of people do not care about <laughs> right yeah yeah yeah, so. no, that's, that's an interesting perspective, and like I'm, I'm inclined to sympathize. Like, uh, I think that because, like, look how it's characterized. Okay, so yeah, it's like yeah. uh, one class divisions. That's a right. characteristic of states. Yeah, Two, exactly. private property. Yeah. It's a characteristic of states. Private yeah. ownership of the means of production. Characteristic of states. Right. Uh, right. Use of money. Characteristic <laughs> of states. Like, what else is there? It's basically just like. Uh, the use of finance as the primary operating logic. Yeah, I think and, I think that's honestly the main thing, at least as yeah. we understand it now, is that and the like, source of legitimacy. Of yeah, yeah, exactly. And 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 I would say, yeah, the source of legitimacy, um, and and that's actually linked to you know, like the kind of, it's it's kind of like one of these iron triangles or whatever, where it's like the source of legitimacy, um, is essentially shared between the state and the corporations. The corporations are a particular set of possible um, working arrangements that are considered legitimate, right? Um, And then by behaving in those ways, which is essentially, uh, you know, as we've talked about, like, you know, it's kind of as a bureau of the state or an organ of the state, and the state is kind of the supplier of force for the corporations, at least at this point, um, uh, and but then the but then the corporations themselves typically act as as yeah microstates in in many ways you know or like in the case of like transnational corporations and, and conglomerates like um, just like non-territorial states or or like maybe like uh, maybe not like non-territorial because they have to be on land anyway or like somewhere but like um, non. Uh, territorially unfixed states like they can lift up and, and go somewhere else and that's actually one of their weapons um oh yeah like thalassocracies and stuff yeah exactly right so yeah exactly and so they're like they're kind of like semi-mobile um because what they're concerned about is uh as with the original phases of what we call capitalism you know they're concerned with stock and flows mm-hmm. um but they're also concerned with labor because labor's you know inescapable but you can get labor anywhere if you can just like get the formal state 
to cooperate and help you out and you make deals and all this shit. So it's kind of like, I mean, this is kind of where I think that the, so, you know, you like you hear like the nationalists freaking out about globalism. And I think that it's like, you know, their, their analysis is kind of bad and dumb typically, but I, I see kind of what they're seeing, which is that like the cell walls of what they thought was like a discrete nation or something like that, you know, which isn't always just borders, but it's like, you know, like they talk about culture, they talk about values, but they talk about the way we do things. Right. Um, I see their paranoia arises because they realize, oh, actually we can also be exploited in turn and labor uh, is just kind of this abstract mass of people to these exploiters. Um, but what they fail to, uh, I think, realize is that like they're defaulting to like, oh, we have to have our state win, right? That's basically the point. Um, and that's, you know, it's this predatory reaction um, from, from like a fear that rises from like a kind of intuitive, like a gut check about the penetration of a kind of a state capital uh, complex that just kind of like goes and sort of dissolves all things before it. And, you know, like, I mean, it's capitalism is the gray goo problem, right? Yeah. Like, you know, you know what I mean, but like for, for people who are not familiar, um, Grey goo is this idea of like a, what is it, like a sort of a thought experiment of like, what if we created like these nanomachines, you know, that, that could like consume of, stuff and then self-replicate. Right, exactly. Like, for, for like industrial purposes or whatever, but then like yeah. they get out of control and they just do it for their own purposes. Like they essentially do it mindlessly, like in a viral way. Yeah. Um, and then, and then they take over the entire world and turn every last fucking thing into gray goo, which is them. Right. But they don't have any other purpose. They just consume. And I'm like, well, that's literally how this system works. It's just mindless consumption and self-replication. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's also, that's also the plot of horizon zero dawn. Um, to, which is a PS4 that. game. Oh, um, oh it's a game. Cool. Cool. Okay. Yeah. It's a really good PS4 game. And uh -huh. basically uh, what I'm guessing is the United States in this story uh, <laughs> creates mm -hmm some self-replicating military robots okay, and yeah. uh, the robots are able to um, take in organic matter to power themselves. Okay. And so they basically uh, self-replicate ad infinitum and consume all organic matter on earth. Oh yeah. That makes sense. I mean, honestly, it's what they would do um, yep. because they have a directive, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of like, it also reminds me of the, the Blom concept, except with like that has like yes. mega structures. Right. Yep. Um, so it kind of goes the opposite way in terms of scale. Um, yeah. And there was no concerns about resource depletion there. But yeah. Yeah. So, you know, giant, yeah. <laughs> unforgiving city with a bunch of killbots in it. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that's the, so this is the interesting thing, right, is that um, let's make an analogy. And it's a bit of a wild analogy, but I think people will get it um, because we have faith in you, faithful listeners. Um, <laughs> so, so you think about, um, ecology, you know, um, guano is this integral part of these, of these ecosystems. It comes from an, a, li a living thing because the living thing needed to feed on something else to, to, you know, reproduce itself essentially to, you know, uh, in the Marxian sense, but also to like make more, you know, uh, offspring. Right. Um, and 
And, uh, and so then guano is a byproduct of the life and existence and, and activities of these birds, these bats, etc. The guano then becomes a source of energy. Um, and in a sense, in terms of it's like the fact that it's like a material in which the plant can be rooted, it turns into a, a home for like a new plant. Um, which is a really weird yeah. thing to think about because you're like, well, it's shit, but you know, yeah, it can be the house for a plant or it can be house for bugs or whatever. And then those things go on and live and they create byproducts and everybody feeds on each other's byproducts, you know, or on each other to some extent, you know, like we eat plants and, and some of us eat animals and things like that. We drink water. Sometimes the water has microbes and things, well, it always has microbes in it that may feed or um, affect our, our gut flora, you know, things like that. So this is like this this beautiful, incredibly, like infinitely diverse, like universes within universes, all uh, working together in passive and active ways, you know? Um, and they create vitality, right? They create and maintain like uh, abundance and like flourishing and, and all these other words that we all have in our languages to describe the world that we've uh, that we're supposed to inherit, you know, the natural world uh, in the sense that it's um, the proper world feckin and the natural world. Yeah, it's the fucking world. All right, yeah, exactly. But nobody says that fucking word. So <laughs> we're the only ones who fucking use that word. Um, but like, the, yeah, the, the world that is both natural in that it's proper and natural in that it's like, you know, it's this ecology. Then you have... Um, the the gray goo concept which is hypothetical but at this point in in, in our you know industrial development it's barely Not that hypothetical, hypothetical. <laughs> exactly exactly it's getting it's getting there um and and it basically is a species of automaton that mindlessly consumes and produces um such that um it uniformly more or less uniformly covers the world or at the very least that any variant of possibility comes from it you know as a permutation and that is the base over paradise and exactly up a parking lot yes yes uh exactly um and the parking lot is made of its horrible little bodies um <laughs> but that's the difference that's the difference between liberatory political economy and um bum, 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 fascist political economy just like all this horrific dominating kind of right-wing shit um that may come in many colorful disguises but it's really just about like you know i eat you don't i kill you know you die i i get you don't get and and um shades of you know shades of of uh permission under dominance that permit those systems to kind of survive so that like the dominator can can thrive only you know um but really, like, yeah, that's the, that's the basic difference is that, like, we who love life tend to think about and understand life as it must be and as it is and as it has been and what we must restore it to become. And people who um, are more obsessed with their kind of own aggrandizement or, or with attaching themselves to some project of power, like, oh, you know, hierarchical... Uh, exploitative power like capitalism like fascism like imperialism like you know racist colonial whatever all these things um and and even in like in the very old days you know like the domination of of um 
the outer, like the outer farmlands and riverlands by like central walled cities and things like that, you know, all the, all these things. Um, that's, that's the line. That's the left, right divide right there. Right. Um, Agreed. You can talk and yeah, you can talk yourself blue in the face about like morality and, and concepts of justice and everything like that. Right. You can talk yourself to death about scarcity versus abundance. Um, or ownership of like, the means of production. Right, right, right. You know, like, and these are these are things that you can they can talk about. You can use it uh, to form uh, conceptions of the world and how to deal with it. Right, they're tools. But ultimately, what it comes down to is, do you want to live in a world where guano is fucking awesome and you can get bricks of it to make farms? Uh, if only you respect those birds um, and their and their territory and their flying space, or do you want gray goo? You know. That's the fucking choice, you know, uh, to put it in books. Brown brick or, or gray goo. <laughs> exactly. Brown brick or gray goo, you know, and, and uh, wasn't it Bookshin who said, you know, anarchy or annihilation? Like, it's basically what we're facing. But it's yeah. always been the question. It's always actually been the question. It's Fascism like, or barbarism. I choose barbarism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> so. Um. Who knew that uh, bird shit would carry us to such heights of philosophy? <laughs> um, so I, I forgot. Uh, I forgot about the Confederate part in that United States of bird shit, Confederate States of bat shit, and it's mm-hmm. really brief. Basically, during the Civil okay. War, there was a blockade that prevented them from making gunpowder. Um, uh, see, and so they used uh, bat cave based huh. saltpeter to make gunpowder. Wow! So damn. Yeah. The inventiveness of humanity. Yep. <laughs> um, and uh, fortunately today, uh, we don't use guano fertilizer uh, for most of our agriculture. Uh, instead, we make nitrogen from na- natural gas ah. and uh, phosphorus from rock dissolved in acid. And the acid cool. is also made of natural gas. So. Cool. <laughs> um, but also we, also, we, we also use guano fertilizer uh, in mm. organic farming. Mm. So. Good stuff. Uh, so one part of this book that was, it sounded really interesting, but I didn't get to because I literally started reading it last night, um, <laughs> uh, was, uh, the author suggests that, uh, Guano also started the rise of technocrats. Um, Oh Yeah. So, like, the mass dependence of state society on chemical fertilizers and other chemical uh, and scientific products uh-huh. led to the rise of scientists, engineers, economists, and other experts to positions of authority within the state. Um, uh-huh. So, if the early colonial era represented the rise of merchant power, where, you know, you had these merchants uh, going to foreign lands and stealing their resources and bringing it back, uh, the late colonial era represented the rise of technocrat power, where... Um, the resource exploitation, uh, led to increasingly complex technologies and, um, industry, which required, um, you know, a large, ever larger hierarchy of uh-huh. experts, uh-huh. uh, to govern it. Uh-huh. There's that, there's that uh, so, again, right? There's that creep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Uh, so Humboldt, who we mentioned earlier, uh-huh. uh, the Prussian naturalist, uh, you know, guy who walks around nude all the time. Uh, <laughs> I think that's what a naturalist is. Uh, 
Uh, so he was intimately involved in this process. In this process, uh, so he prominently challenged the legitimacy of Spanish rule over the Americas. Uh, mm-hmm. And the main part of his objection was because of their treatment of the soil. Uh, not any of the slaves or indigenous people, but uh, the dirt. Um, and uh, that was a well-received and highly uh, regarded uh, critique at the time. Uh, he also had a correspondence with Simon Bolivar, the revolutionary leader that overthrew the Spanish colonizers. Um, and uh, Jean B- Jean-Baptiste Boussingot, who I mentioned earlier, uh, he was a French scientist who laid the foundation for understanding the nitrogen cycle uh, using both nitrogen-fixing crops like clover and Peruvian guano uh, when he was able to get it. Um, and Simon Bolivar attempted to appoint Busingo to a governorship in Gran Colombia, uh, but Busingo refused and returned home instead. Um, so I didn't, I didn't get to any of the other parts cool. of this, um, but it sounds very interesting and yeah. it makes sense to me, you know? So, so basically what I'm hearing is that, uh, is that, uh, the, the fixation on, on, on the uses of, of bird shit is responsible for, uh, all the chicken shits that are in our government now, like David Frum and, uh, well, who else are we thinking of? Like, fucking, literally anybody at this point. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, all the all the fucking assholes who show up on Fox News and MSNBC to convince us that actually death cults are good for our, you know, moral character or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, pr- experts are like the primary source of legitimacy for a lot yeah. of people. Yeah, where you know we have to do the, do things this way because X, Y, and Z, right? Um, where X, Y, and Z are like su- supposedly rational things, right? Instead yeah. of like you know earlier would have just been like oh because God has ordained it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, and even even like you think about it as like it's a it's a tool of persuasion. Um, it's it's a manufacturing of consent to use a phrase that I'm sure nobody's ever heard before. Um, and um, it's, it's one way, uh, a very powerful way um, to, to, yeah, to get people to just kind of go along, you know, and also it's also a really good way uh, as we see a lot on Twitter and in like the kind of talking heads media um, for the state or, or like, you know, state adjacent actors to, um, just continuously muddy the waters so that even if they don't have your consent, they've sort of paralyzed you and they've fucked up the discussion, like just beyond recognition. Um, so they've got like, they've got your, you know, your experts, your kind of pseudo experts, and then, and then all the way down to just like your, your bottom feeder ending, uh, types, you know, and like just, you know, uh, people just saying shit to say shit. Uh, and I think that's that's probably part of that uh, effect, you know, is, is just that like, well, you know, oh, I, I, I'm, I'm the expert on, you know, or like I reported this. And so you can't you can't contradict me like I, my story is the is the right story. You know, it's kind of confusing 
uh, fusing uh, the kind of gray areas of just common rumor with like the propaganda apparatus is what I'm saying, you know, and experts are part of that propaganda apparatus. Um, so then, you know, somebody like fucking Ben Shapiro, you know, can be like, you know, fucking, you know, his whole fucking shtick is that he's essentially is that he's an expert, but he doesn't know shit or he, or he does, but he's a liar, you know, uh, he's an expert in logic. <laughs> right, right. Uh, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, it's extremely, uh, yeah. My favorite thing is that like, uh, <clears throat> the most authoritarian people online now, Mm-hmm. They all have like facts and logic in their bio. <laughs> like they they've overtaken the God family country uh, oh, contingent yeah. of of yeah. the authoritarians. I think uh, where yeah, yeah. you know they like you know with someone who says God family country, you know they're full of shit. They're really right. fucking stupid. They think yeah. there's a magical man in the sky that talks to them at night. Um, and with the facts and logic people. It's like, oh, well, you know, maybe uh, maybe they're just wrong, uh, but, you know, they, they do think things through. No, it's actually the opposite. <laughs> they think <laughs> things through less than anyone. Yeah, well, and, exactly. Uh, they yeah. just think yeah. they're right all the time. Yeah. They're sort of solipsistic. Anyway. Yeah. I don't know how we got to this from you. You're mentioning talking heads. I don't know. Uh, I like the talking <laughs> heads. I think they're pretty good. Yeah, yeah, why not? How bizarre. Good song, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. Ooh, baby. It's making <laughs> me crazy. <laughs> this is all making that's me ta- crazy. I think that's talking heads. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, so in chemistry, guano had uses as well. Um so guano, especially bat guano, is high in potassium nitrate, one of the ingredients of black powder. Oh, uh, here's where that passage went. Okay. So mm. uh, here's the, the passage from the Confederate thing. But anyway, like, uh, so basically the scaling up of the nitrogen trade uh, led to the discovery of many other explosives, uh, even beyond black powder, uh, mm. including gun cotton and TNT. Oh, wow. Famous ACDC song. <laughs> yes. Nitrates are also needed in the production of sulfuric acid, mm. which is highly central to the chemical industry. Um, so basically, like, the rise of what we call industrial civilization could not have occurred without large quantities of bird shit. Yeah, wow. Holy shit. That's... that's... Exactly. It's <laughs> amazing. Yep. It's amazing. Uh, so we have an yeah. anime tie-in, one that we've oh, mentioned yeah. a couple times already, but yeah. uh, Dr. Stone involves uh, bat shit. Mm-hmm. Um, early on, uh, Senku uses it to produce nitric acid, um, mm-hmm. which he combines with alcohol to form some other thing. I don't know. I suck at chemistry. Um and then later on, uh, he uses potassium nitrate uh, to make black powder in order to fight back against Tsukasa, who is uh, much stronger than he is, but he doesn't have any guns. So, um, And someone in the comments uh, for uh, on Crunchyroll uh, pointed out that he actually could have made gun cotton a lot more easily. 
Oh, really? <laughs> Some <Yeah. nerd. laughs> Like, like all, all you need for that is you take nitric acid and you um, basically mix it with any cellulose. Uh, so, like, plant pulp. Plant pulp and then right, it turns yeah. into explosive cotton, uh, uh, which works okay. even better than black powder. It's the basis of cordite, which is the oh, shit. British branded... Uh, you know, smokeless propellant that was popular in World War One. Uh, uh, um, yeah, gun cotton. Interesting. That's that's, stuff. that's that's good to know. I wish that I were, um, you know, more chemically inclined myself. That'd be cool to, you know, make it home, you know, for shits and giggles. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Like it, you would think that it would like explode really rapidly, like gunpowder. Uh, but it actually just like burns. It's just that like, it's a sort of like, it's a fairly swift burn, but if you combine it with, um, both like a thin shape that will burn faster and a bunch of other things, a bunch of other little strands of, uh, gun cotton, then, uh, it burns quick enough to propel a bullet. Um, and uh oh and another fun fact is uh like the real name is nitrocellulose uh gun cotton and uh it's first one of its first uses was actually film uh the early u.s film industry used nitrocellulose film uh until they realized uh oh yeah that's right it's uh (laughs) it's a smokeless propellant that will catch on fire very easily (laughs) so they had a bunch of uh theater fires and then they decided to use something else uh Mm -hmm. which they called safety film because it wouldn't kill you (laughs) (laughs) um and uh yeah the last thing about uh, dr stone that i'll mention is uh i i think that senku represent like well i hate to phrase it this way um in my interpretation Senku represents the state, employing the labor of others and using science to conquer the non-state people who are represented by Tsukasa. Mm. Um, so he basically, he's like, he's almost like a revanchist because he wants to restore modern civilization to its former glory right? by saving literally everyone, even though like we were on this unsustainable path that definitely yeah. would have killed everyone. Yeah. So now he's yeah. just going to repeat it all over again. Just do it all. Yeah. Now that so there's a bunch more guano, <laughs> <laughs> we can start the whole process all over again. Yeah. Do all yeah. the sod busting in the U.S. and all that shit. <laughs> God damn it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think Senku is. He might not be intentionally evil, but he happens to be evil. Mm-hmm. And Tsukasa is the lesser evil, even though he's like sort of kind of murdering people, even though they're <laughs> statues. <laughs> And not right. really live. <laughs> right. Oh, if there's statues, you know, it's fine, right? <laughs> and uh, the one piece of supporting evidence that I have for this is that Senku compares Tsukasa to a white lily, which in Japanese culture uh, represents purity and innocence. Aww. So it's almost like he's calling him like like a child, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. like a or a savage or something. Right, right, right. Because I think... Like a I think savage. all the mythology around savages was kind of the same thing as yeah. they were pure and innocent, right. but in a way that was bad, you know? Right. Like, like, ah, uh, you're so innocent. You'll never really 
do what I want you to do for me and my state, you know, but I, you're so innocent, which is why I, I have to force you to do you. what I want you to do. Right, exactly. Cause I, I know better you in an ideal sense, but I don't yeah. respect you in a very real sense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So, uh, that's what I have that for sucks. all that stuff. Yeah. Fascinating. I, I honestly, I, I didn't know guana was so interesting. Um, yeah. It's really fucking interesting. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember how I happened upon it, but I I ended up on the Wikipedia page, and I was like, wow, Mm. this is really long. Yeah. I wonder why. (laughs) (laughs) And how are we going to get ourselves some, you know, a few bags of pigeon shit, you know, really, really kick off a nice science project. That's true nutrient recycling, because they eat all the discarded bagels and stuff in the city. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Reducing food waste by using bird shit, uh, pigeon shit as uh, fertilizer. <laughs> Hell yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the real, the real thing is like we're eventually going to have to stop separating ourselves from nature, and our farming is just going to have to take place where there's naturally more nutrient cycling, or we have to, uh, you know, kind of reorder. Uh, e- eco space, I guess, mm-hmm. to put nutrient cycles closer to where we are. You know, yeah. does that yeah. make sense? Like, like we can't be importing shit from other places. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Like localism, basically. Yeah, yeah, but to like to kind of an extreme. Where, like, yeah, aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm all for that. I'm an I'm an open borders and open fields communist. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I. I so, I, uh, do we have anything else we want to talk about? Uh, well, I was just I was just gonna say, speaking of reclaiming land for for like um, to to restore a little ecology for you know everybody's sake. Um, I uh, I don't think I've mentioned this before, but like just this idea I have for like, you know, after everything really hits the fan and maybe we actually, you know, get back some of our uh, commons and stuff, but like uh, we should really be digging up like probably about half the roads out there, you know, especially once we get rid of like actually really like cut down on the car thing. Um, Just like dig dig it all up and um, do the best we can with all the techniques that have been developed to promote like, you know, super rapid uh, quote unquote old growth, um, like regrowth and, and, and uh, gardening and stuff where like you can I think it was like an Indian or a Japanese naturalist who figured out how to simulate old growth but in like 10 years you know you could get oh, wow. like 100 years of growth yeah and it was like a particular way of approaching it but anyway so basically you know I'm thinking combine like tearing up all these roads that are just like fucking pointless and disgusting to look at um, and they're, and they're literally just sitting on top of the ground, which, which shouldn't have roads on them. You know, it should have other beautiful things on it, um, including bird shit. And, and then you, you know, you, you take your guano and you take your, like, uh, uh, your old growth techniques and you take all this other shit and like all your seed bombs and seed banks and everything. And you basically just aggressively like rehabilitate the freed up land. And the, and the beautiful thing about it is that then you could have like, you know, say every few blocks, um, 
residentially and and even maybe between businesses and stuff downtown, et cetera, you'll have like these giant strips of like, you know, garden and forest growing. And because of the structure, like the, the you know, sort of like the, I guess the geometric structure, linear structure, network structure of the roads, um, like these, these like strips can connect to each other and they'll basically turn into kind of like an interstitial jungle. Um, and I think that would be like a really cool project for us to embrace once we like, you know, like ax the cappies. <laughs> so Swidden, but for civilization. <laughs> exactly. It'd be fucking fantastic. Plus it'd be really good for our mental health. Um, yeah. And also there'd be a lot more shade and it would maybe eat yeah. up a little bit of the extra carbon dioxide, even though I know a lot oh, of that is up in the stratosphere. I get that. But like, you know, you could always do with more, you know, planet. dude, it's insane. The difference between, a neighborhood that is shaded by trees and a neighborhood that is not shaded by trees. Oh yeah. Like, it's, in, in terms of temperature, it's yeah. fucking crazy. It is nearly night and day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it's pretty fantastic. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I, I think, I think yeah. we need to move beyond seed bombs though and mm-hmm. uh, have seed mech suits. Oh, I agree. Like, we need a, we need a seed Gundam. I, I, <laughs> this is exactly <laughs> Almost exactly what I was thinking the other day. I was thinking more in terms of like a <laughs> grenade launcher. Like, like I was thinking about like I was like, how do we like force um, seed Moab? The- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Seed NASA, just like massive rockets, just blasting. Folks, they call it the mother of all seed bombs. It's very <laughs> big. It's so big. What a big boy. <laughs> How many, like you start measuring your seed bombs in, um, in kilotons and megatons and <laughs> like, oh my God, the blast radius on the seed bomb, there, there'll be jungle here for, you know, millions of years. <laughs> but yeah, I was thinking like, how, how do we like basically surreptitiously force like these like monocultures, um, to develop polycultures. So it's like, how do we do that without literally just revolting against the, the, you know, the corporations and then like the people manning these farms and stuff. Yeah. And, it's hard. I was thinking about this because yeah. that, I mean, right now provides a great example of the uphill battle that it is because yeah. uh, fascists are burning down the Amazon yeah. right now. Fuck. And so, yeah. you know, even if uh, you, you know, um, what's yeah. it called? covertly you know plant all these trees and build up these forests yeah. someone can just come up and burn it down you know yeah yeah at that point our destructive like power it, is far beyond our re- regenerative power yeah i mean this comes right back to the gray goo analogy right like yeah um just you know burning down the rainforest is basically a human equivalent to the gray goo thing you know it's just one way we do this right um um versus you know uh respecting it uh, you know giving it its distance you know working around it working with it um becoming part of it if you feel like you know you want to go the kind of um the way of of those many indigenous uh, people who who have learned to do that um though at this point i think it's pretty late but yeah like yeah it's pretty dismal like you know you we could plant all this stuff and then some dipshit will burn it down um and i think that you know this is where this is where the battle kind of, you know, becomes war. Like, like you, you try to do one thing right. Somebody 
fucks with you or fucks you up or whatever. So we need President Bernie Sanders to, you know, send the bombers into Sao Paulo to destroy the Capitol building. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of course, then you get collateral damage, then you kill innocent people, uh, quote unquote. And, uh, you know, you end up with all sorts of political problems and problems of persuasion, you know. So then they drag their experts. Well, out. I guess we can just send in SEAL Team 69 or whatever. <laughs> right. We get a. We, we could develop a seed bomb that, that plants uh, things in people, you know, so that at least when we like shoot somebody, we're creating life. You know, that's, that's the real shit. <laughs> we'll, um, we'll uh, send uh, heroic Mujahideen fighters in to fuck out Dan Crenshaw's other eye hole. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Uh, have, you, have you seen this Twitter controversy? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so for those who are out of the loop, uh, we mentioned Hassan Piker, I think on our last episode with John mm-hmm. and um, he's uh, getting attacked by right wingers now because they found an old video of his uh, where he's talking about Dan Crenshaw mm-hmm. and he's like, yeah, so you, you invaded uh, a foreign country and then some heroes fucked out your eye hole. <laughs> and uh, now you have to wear an eye patch and you look like a fucking stupid asshole. And uh, now he's all pissed about it, but he's, you know, yeah. trying to say he's not mad. He's actually laughing. Right, right. And, um, and that Hassan is actually triggered, etc. It's very yeah. funny. Super triggered. Meanwhile, like everyone that supports him is like, Oh my God, this is basically like they're declaring civil war. Oh, fucking kind of yeah. shit, you know, Fuck people just overblowing everything. <laughs> like, they regularly so... talk about just genociding people and then they're like, oh, well, it's just jokes or, you know, right, right, right. yeah, it's just like, like the obvious thing to do or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now they're like, just... wow, Hassan Piker uh, said, said that 9-11 was good, <laughs> <laughs> right. which it was. Let's be honest. <laughs> Uh, I, I guess I don't have anything else, do you? I'm, I mean, you're the one who did all the research, so. <laughs> uh, there is one more thing that I found earlier this week, just a brief little thing. Uh, American Airlines to pay $22 million uh, U.S. fine over mail delivery times. Hmm. So they were, like, committing mass fraud, saying, like, report, like, underreporting their delivery times. Um, so... They Shit. lost a lawsuit. Now they have to pay $22 million. Ha ha. Uh, uh, it's not much for them, but yeah. you know, yeah. better than Just nothing, like the, I guess. Like one CEO. Yeah. For a year. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, oh, I guess, I mean, I've been posting a bit about it, um, but I think like Whitey doesn't care that much, but like um, there's reasons for that. Uh, so West Papua, if anybody knows what the fuck that is, West Papua is a province in Indonesia that uh, is actually one of uh, – it's, it's a long story, but basically may or may not have talked about this before, but uh, the, uh, the west side of the island of Papua, right, um, which is a very large island, um, is has been historically called West Papua. Then um, the Indonesian government, right, the state, um, with the encouragement of 
the uh, United States, uh, took over the uh, Republic of West Papua after it basically declared its own independence after the, uh, uh, I'm a little murky on exactly how that happened, but basically after the Japanese and the Dutch had both been kind of, you know, ass kicked out of Indonesia as we know it now, um, mm-hmm. then a bunch of, there was like a bunch of like regional autonomy movements um, because of course, like fucking duh, of course, like after living under the fucking colonial boot for like hundreds of years, you want to do your own thing. But the Indonesian state, which had been set up by a bunch of, well, it was, it was a coalition and we won't get into that. You can read about it or I can talk to you about it later. Um, either Let me guess. Uh, they were, it was set up by people who were formerly friendly with the colonial administration and let it in in the first place. Pretty much, yeah. So it was shocking. People, yeah, exactly. In Indonesia, it was uh, a tripartite coalition of um, uh, Islamists, so people who wanted an Islamic republic, um, communists, uh, and it was the was it the largest communist party. So good guys, and then yes. who else? <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly, and uh, nationalists. So okay. who you know. Good guys and bad guys. So they they all knew, as you often see in, in especially um, what like the kind of state building eras uh, in the twentieth century and nineteenth century. Like they all knew they couldn't win alone, so they they you know they worked together, knowing that they'd all eventually stab each other in the back later. Um, yeah. As we know now, um, the communists. But I'll be the first one. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. Communists (laughs) lost the knife fight. um, And then the Islamists and the nationalists decided to just kind of like, you know, agree to, you know, chill on the rest. Um, Well, you know what they say, never bring a knife to a mech suit fight. (laughs) Basically, yeah. Especially (laughs) when the U.S. basically like, you know, funding the coup. So, um, yeah. So. Then they decided, well, you know, uh, West Papua, this area, well, West Papua, which had declared its independence or which eventually declared its independence, because um, everybody was kind of, it was just a shit show. Anyway, they were like, this place is full of fucking resources, um, and the people there are mostly kind of, uh, in many ways, analogous to, like, um, the people of, like, the South Pacific Islands or of, like, the Amazon or of, um, let's say... Um, so indigenous Austronesians, basically. Yes, indigenous Austronesians, exactly. Um, yeah. And, you know, like Highlands people and, and, and Fisher people and stuff like that. So uh, so then uh, the state was like, actually, this is ours now. Um, annexed it. It was bloody. They cracked down on resistance pretty hard. Um, and they called it uh, Irian Jaya. And when I was growing up, that's what it was still called. Um, and that name didn't change until like several years ago. Irian Jaya means literally uh, glorious conquest. So, you know, oh completely off on this shit. Yeah. Right. So, so basically, um, you know, imagine being an indigenous person living in a place called glorious conquest, right? Like, yeah. fuck off, right? Um, although many people, of course, you know, indigenous to the Americas, for example, or Africa, I'm sure could relate um, to, to, to yeah, everywhere it's called that. Columbus or Columbia. Yeah, or, yeah, exactly. What the yeah. fuck? So yeah. right, so so this shit. 
Um, so essentially, it's it's um, post-colonial colonialism um, in this fucked up, weird, you know, sort of shit. Uh, the logic of the state, right? So anyway, um, <clears throat> uh, so West Papua is called Arian Jaya for like decades. Um, and part of the whole deal was there's this, it's the, uh, is it the, it's a, the largest gold mine and the third largest copper mine in the world in a specific site in West Papua. It's called the Grassberg mine. The Grassberg mine is owned by Freeport McMoran, which is a U.S. conglomerate. <laughs> um, oh this was part of the deal, basically. Um, yeah, so basically uh, this whole thing was a way for Indonesia, the state, not the people per se, but the state, um, and U.S. corporate power to both win by cooperating to obviously exploit the, the land and the people. Uh, so then there's been um, flare-ups ever since. Uh, there, uh, there were, like, freedom movements that started uh, in, like, the 70s and have gone since. I, I mean, technically, of course, there's freedom movements pretty much as soon as troops hit the ground, right? But, like, formal movements, I think, started in the 70s. And then um, they've been duking it out ever since in, like, spats and spars and shit. Like every now and then um mm -hmm. recently as of like last week i want to say uh so uh indonesian independence day just happened on the 17th and there was you know how this shit always goes with like inter-ethnic political internationalist bullshit like where somebody sees somebody you know, doing something to their fucking flag, right? And then, oh, yeah. all fucking, all fucking restraints hold me back, boys. You know, like uh, I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna fuck up this guy who's slightly browner than me, right? In, in this case, you know. So, so basically, in Surabaya, which is Eastern Java, which is like one of the major cities in, in the West, right? So, one of the um, kind of consumer cities, you know, one of the kind of more imperial cities. Um, if you want to take that analysis about the relationship to the rest of the country, you know, um, and this is both, again, this is both like kind of imperial core versus periphery kind of shit, you know, post-colonial colonialism kind of shit. And it's mm -hmm. also inter-ethnic, like it's a very diverse place, but there are certain dominant ethnic groups. And of course there are dominant cities. So Surabaya is a city that is both economically fairly dominant um, and also is home to people who are ethnically and politically dominant, right? Um, not as much obviously as Jakarta, or, or, but it's pretty it's pretty far up there. So some people were like, oh, these, oh shit, these Papuan students, right? Who were there for, you know, fucking college or something. Oh, I saw them, I saw them, you know, defiling the Indonesian flag. So, you know, they threw it down a well or something, right? So first off, if they did, good for them. You know, I love Indonesia, but like, you know, statism is no good. Um, and nationalism is definitely a toxin. So, you know, uh, so then that turned into the, these guys went back. I mean, like these students, I guess, were in their dorm or something. And they got like, it was something like they got barricaded in by a mob of fucking people saying a bunch of like, 
uh, racist chants and shit against them, right? Um, and just saying all this fucking shit, uh, which of course pop wins are used to, you know, um, they're, they're, yeah, they're constantly kind of like maligned and looked down on and abused, you know, um, just for fucking existing. And again, this is, you know, we know, we know how this goes and uh, it's really sad. Uh, anyway, so, so, <laughs> so these fucking students are getting like fucking besieged in their own residence. Um, who knows the veracity of what happened? Who knows what the fuck is going on with, with, them and and any involvement with like defacing or defiling or whatever a flag um but you know this fucking mob turns out and you know sort of terrorizes them and shit so then since then um in west papua um basically a bunch of very sizable very loud and energetic demonstrations came up and then also a bunch of others uh, came up in country in, in, in cities across the country, um, even as far as Sumatra, which is like the westernmost island. Um, uh, and and they were all pretty sizable. Like uh, there was anarchist action, which like I've noticed seems to be rising in Indonesia, um, which is oh, yeah. interesting to watch. Yeah, um, and they like blocked a road with like a sit down protest. Um, and the, the pop ones, it's been interesting because the pop ones, uh, they, they get a lot of shit for being these indigenous people. Right. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to oversimplify this and I don't want to like just transpose one thing onto another because it's not really the same, but there are many resonances, but they're kind of like, mm-hmm. uh, they're like the black people of, of Indonesia. Right. In many ways, okay. but in other ways, they're like the uh, indigenous Americans, you know, like they're just right. all rolled into one in a way. Um, and so uh, a lot of these like uh, others, for, especially from the, the Western provinces, call them like monkeys, right? Like, Oof. yeah. Uh-huh. So um, in the protests, you saw them take it two ways. Some of them were reclaiming it. Right. And even in one pro- protest, there was like a Poplin kid who was like jumping around doing like monkey like movements, uh, <laughs> like intentionally just kind of like throw it back. Um, yeah. And then others, of course, were holding signs that were more blatantly just like we are the people of Papa. We're not monkeys, you know, um, and it sucks that it has to be said at all. Right. Um, but they're just being super bold and now as of like i think yesterday uh the indonesian military has landed and there's an internet blackout (laughs) and i just saw a photo i can't confirm because it was just a photo shared uh on twitter by somebody affiliated with like the free papua movement uh free west papua movement um but it's just like this kid like just like dead on the ground, like fucking guts out and everything. And I was just like, Oh Jesus Christ. So, you know, my Western Twitter friends are generally not picking this up, but I really wish they fucking would because it's, uh, it's kind of getting to me (laughs) like, 
uh, it may not be anybody's cause celeb, but like it's a it's a big fucking deal, and it has exactly to do with everything else we're fighting, you know. Um, yeah, there's just so yeah. much shit happening right now. It's exactly, fucking crazy. Exactly. Like, I, I do understand that like it's happening exactly at the same time as these fucking burnings in the Amazon. Um, yeah, and, and arsons. Let's call them arsons. Yeah, yeah, and 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 all the shootings obviously are just ongoing. Um, yeah. And so, Epstein and all that Epstein, stuff. Right. Like, Jesus Christ. Like, August isn't even fucking over. Um, and then uh, Kashmir. Right. That whole situation. Ugh, yep. There's just so much shit. God. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, anyway. So, you know, right now, I don't know. By the time this episode's posted, it might not, might not still be. But, like, right now, my Abby is the um, um, Republic of West Papua flag. Um just you know, doing the NL thing and just like fl- flying it, flying a, a, an independence flag, you know, because that's the flag they chose for themselves, um, and and uh, that's the one that they've been flying at the protests and stuff. So, you know, at the very least, that's meaningful. So, but uh, I, I wish I could do more, but that's about it. <laughs> uh, so I looked up Freeport McMorrin, and oh, yeah. uh, on Wikipedia it says in. August 2017, the company agreed to give a 51% interest in the Grossberg mine to the government of Indonesia and build a smelter in exchange for a special permit to operate the mine until 2041. Yep. Yep. Um, Good old horse trading. (laughs) And then last year, uh, Joko Widodo, who is the president of Indonesia, um, took 51% control of Freeport Indonesia's equity. Um, which involves them settling payments of three point eight five billion. Yeah. Um, which they finalized December twenty first, twenty eighteen. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, in that so. in that kind of uh, in that kind of differential accumulation kind of kind of way, like they're doing the right thing, you know, like they're doing the smart thing, which which is trying to like um gain control of the future of this exploitation, um, mm-hmm. right. To accrue that to themselves. Um, you know, in the nationalist sense, it makes perfect sense. Um, it's unfortunate that any use of, you know, ex- uh, extraction and use of this, of this material comes at the expense of so much and of so many people and has already done, you know, um, Man, we need to stop ending on these depressing notes. <laughs> we should lead with them. <laughs> yeah, right. Because uh, I don't really okay. have anything else to add. Well, so. if you hate listens to that. Check out our shit. But yeah, so we support uh, Indonesian independence, uh, Papuan mm-hmm. independence, um, and really. Uh, all non-fascist independence movements that are out exactly. there. <laughs> exactly. I can support Indonesian independence and I can support West Papua independence, you know, like, yep. uh, they don't have to exist at the expense of each other. <laughs> I think everyone should be their own country. Yeah, basically everyone gets, everyone gets to design a flag. It's just like everyone creating your own nation in history class. <laughs> yeah, you're right. yeah. Everything's just, everyone gets a motto and a constitution. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> Uh, um, so 
Uh, I guess that's all we have today. If you enjoyed that, check out our other episodes at neighborsciencepodcast.com. I decided today that I'm going to start grouping episodes into series uh, so it's easier to find a topic. So this is going to be part of the Colonial Business series, uh, which I'm going to retroactively put the um, uh, Dutch East India Company episode and the Sugar Trade episode into. And I think... Didn't we also do one on tea and coffee? I don't know if we talked uh, about colonialism yeah. there. Yeah, we, we we talked about coffee and tea. I think we talked very tangentially about like colonials and stuff. But, okay, because um, I thought of doing that as a full episode. Maybe maybe we can still do that um, if we didn't talk about the colonial aspects of it. Yeah. Um, plus, it's just fun to talk about tea and coffee. Um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, look out for that. I'll try and get it set up this weekend if I can. Uh, I do have a lot of editing to do, so we'll see. Um, although a lot of that is just sitting there, so I'll have time to <laughs> fuck around with the website quickly. Sure. Um, uh, you can follow our Twitter at Neighborside Pod. Uh, leave us a review on iTunes if you have it, and if you don't, uh, you know, just tell your friends. Um, mm-hmm. What else? I'm at Handle of Rye. Chris is at Solidarity underscore Goth. Yep. Uh, Patreon.com slash neighbor science is our Patreon. Uh, we still haven't really gotten to bonus episodes, but we did just record one that we're gonna we we are going to early release it on the Patreon. So I'm thinking we're gonna do that uh, more in the future. Um. So if you pay, I don't know, what what do you think? Any, any amount or over a certain amount? I, I think just any amount would be good. Um, you can listen to those episodes a month early. Um, and then if you don't want to pay because you already pay for 50 podcasts like me, then you can just wait and then it'll eventually come to your feed. Um, yeah, cool. That's it. All right. Thanks everyone. Okay. Love you. Bye. (laughs) Love you.